Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Well, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning in. And today we have Mike Clausen with us today. And I just had the privilege of meeting Mike just a month ago at the wild goose festival. And that, and it was my first experience at the wild goose festival as well. So I drove from Kansas city to North Carolina because I wanted to take my gravel bike because I wanted to ride the Appalachian mountains while I was there. And I only got one good bike ride in while I was there, but, mm -hmm. um, and Brian McLaren had encouraged me to go. So I knew nobody at this wild goose festival except for Brian. And then I, and now I, I met several people, Mike, I, I enjoyed meeting you. Mike is the director. I'm not sure the exact title administrator for, administrator for a organization called Illumin. And we're, we're going to get to that here in a minute, but um, it is a, it is an organization, I guess that Richard Rohr started about That's in right. 2012. Is that right? That's right that worked with concepts of men's rights of passage and stuff like that. So we're going to get to like men's spirituality, men's rights of passage, men, false masculinity a little bit here in a minute. But first I want to get some of your story, Mike. So thanks for joining us at spirituality adventure. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to be with you, Fred. Good to see you again. You too. Um, so tell us where you were born. I, I, I just assume you're a Texas guy, but now <laughs> I, I just, we chatted a little bit and I learned you're, you're not a, you're not a Texas kid, right? No, I think there's a saying down here. I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> um, I actually, I'm a Midwestern boy uh, from the Great Lakes region. So I, I actually miss the uh, part of the country that has actual seasons and not just a uh, nine month long summer. But um, uh, I, I was born in Ohio, uh, Northwest Ohio, and then I moved to Michigan pretty quick. Um, and spent my teen years uh, in northern rural Michigan, nor northern Lower Peninsula. My dad was a, uh, a, a director at a Baptist Bible camp um, up there. So, uh, and then uh, and then I went to college in the Chicago area. So, and got stuck there for about twelve years in the suburbs of Chicago. So, uh, so just all over the Great Lakes region. Yeah, where'd you go to college? Went to Whedon College, which um, likes to describe itself as. Uh, an evangelical flagship sort of institution. Um, sometimes they call themselves the rather amusingly to me, uh, the, the Harvard of Christian colleges, which I, I think is kind of funny because I'm pretty sure Harvard's not over there calling itself, you know, the Whedon of secular colleges or anything, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, you know, it was academically rigorous, but also deeply, deeply evangelical. Um, and at the time very enamored with, uh, you know, CS Lewis, uh, we call them St. Jack, um, very enamored with, uh, I mean, just, it, it was, it was a good place for who I was at the time. And, uh, it would definitely not be a fit for me these days. Right. I, am I wrong? Um, was, was Jim Elliott somehow tied to, we, yeah, yeah. Had, Jim Elliott, the missionary that, um, that was, uh, murdered or killed by, um, uh, some indigenous tribe that he was trying to evangelize down in South America. And yeah, then his wife, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, who a lot of uh, young Christian women have unfortunately read her books, uh, ended up writing, <laughs> writing his story and, and, and about a lot of other things. Uh, so he was an all, he was an alumni. So was Billy Graham. Uh, yeah. I was thinking Billy Graham went there. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a, you know, one of the big buildings is the Billy Graham center. It houses mm -hmm. a, a museum to Billy's uh, crusades and evangelistic work, as well as the, uh, the fundraising, uh, the development office. Yeah. So may, maybe apropos, I'm not sure. There's a guy named uh, John Walton. That yes. is a, a Old Testament. I, I did a, I've worked on a lot of degrees myself. I was working on a PhD in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. 
and uh, ran across Walton. I, I kind of like some of his work on the ancient Near East. And um, I have I one of his books on my shelf over here. Oh, yeah. And then I also I'm trying to think um, I've done a lot of work with the Arab Muslim world mm. and uh, used to help host a, the Middle East suite at the National Prayer Breakfast. And nice. One of, one of the board members at Wheaton actually was involved with us in the Middle in the Middle East mm. world. His, he was a doctor named. Oh, man, I'm going to blank on his name now. Oh, well. Oh, well, anyway. It'll come to me 30 minutes from now. So, well, if you're good but, looking for good other uh, ex Whedon folks to interview, I don't know if you've had Larisha Hawkins on the uh, podcast before, but uh, she was the, um, the, the professor that got pushed out of Whedon for uh, showing solidarity with Muslims and, uh, um, and wearing a hijab or posting a picture of her hijab on a, on a uh, social media or something. And it was a big, whole big deal. Yeah. National news, but Larisha is a, a fantastic scholar and, and has a lot of good things to say. So huh. look her I'll up as well. Her out. Yeah. 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 All right. So tell us, tell us you're, you've got a lot of education. Give us your education track and how that, how that has evolved into, you know, kind of where you're at now spiritually. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a weirdo in the sense that uh, for me, the life of the mind and intellectual pursuits and philosophical questions are deeply wrapped up with my spirituality. You know, ideas are um, spiritual to me. They're not just abstract. They're not just, they're not separate from practice or, or ethics or, or, uh, or any of the rest of it. Um, I, I remember having spiritual experiences as an undergrad reading Thomas Aquinas, you know, out on the front lawn of Whedon uh, and uh, just, yeah, uh, being moved so deeply just by this abstract medieval philosophy. So, um, so like, yeah, I, scholastic, I, scholastics moving people. Yeah. Know, right? Well, yeah. people don't realize Aquinas <laughs> himself was a mystic and he, he, he spent the last decade of his life, not writing theology, but just, as a contemplative pursuing kind of a mystical vision of, of the divine. So, um, you know, I, I really, I can relate to, to that. That's good. Uh, that's sort of my own path is, is from, you know, scholastic pursuits to, um, contemplative pursuits. And, uh, I, but yeah, so I, I want to say that in preface to say that, you know, my, my educational pedigree is deeply wrapped up in my own spirituality. Um, I started, uh, I did uh, philosophy undergrad at Whedon, along with a double major in Christian ed. I stayed there and did a master's degree in missions and intercultural studies because I thought I wanted to go start churches in Europe. Um, that never happened, but uh, I did end up as a youth pastor in uh, the Chicago suburbs and then a church planter and then um, left that to go back to school and get a, a master's in theology at a, a, pres a, a liberal mainline Presbyterian school. Who did you, were you, planting uh with a particular group when you uh, just with a real small midwest denomination called the churches of god general conference so not not the pentecostal okay. churches of god but just a sort of middle of the road evangelical group but they cleveland church of god anderson no no there was it's a it, it, it's the the anderson church of god split off from the one that i was a part of the Anderson folks were the holiness movement ones and mine was the second great awakening ones. So okay. Charles Finney era kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, but I, I found them mostly because they had some money to give and they had a vision for planting innovative, what at the time we were calling emerging churches. I was a part of this emerging church movement, which was mostly post evangelicals rethinking theology, spirituality, ministry practices, um, you know, all of, all of the things, church polity. What year was this? This was uh, mid two thousands. So, so this has been the Doug Paget, Brian yep. McLaren crowd, even even the Wild Goose crowd to some degree emerged out of that, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah. No, the Wild Goose uh, is, was in its origin a emerging church event. Okay, um, it was envisioned and conceptualized and planned by all those emerging folks, and then it's mm -hmm. kind of taken on its life of its own as that movement dwindled and and turned into other things. Yeah, but. Uh, but I, I like to say that just like the dinosaurs didn't actually die out, they, they just evolved into birds. Uh, you know, the emerging church movement didn't die out. It just evolved into wild geese and other things. 
<laughs> so uh, yeah <laughs> yeah so no Bri yeah Bri mclaren uh, brian's a good friend of mine he's he's a mentor from way back um doug's doug's a friend all those guys we, we were all collaborators on all kinds of projects back in the day uh my yeah. little piece of it was to help out help create cohorts around the country help people find each other yeah uh, that needed to talk about these things yeah these days we might call them theology pubs um back right. when we were calling them cohorts yeah you know i was um I'm just getting to know some of these people this really recently. Right. Yeah. But, uh, and just came to Richard Rohr in the fall of 2019. The first, first Richard Rohr book I read was in the fall of 2019. And this was in the kind of the aftermath of my, uh, you know, just kind of my whole world getting turned upside down. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I told Doug Padgett, we were talking and I said, you know, I tried to get into one of those early, leadership networks things that he was putting together, but I was too old. Huh. You yeah. weren't a young leader at the time, huh? Right. Yeah. I was four, I was 40 and I was too old. So <laughs> like you had to be born. I think I told Doug, I said, I tried to get in, but like I, I was born in 61 and I think the cutoff was you had to be born in 64 or later. Uh, that, that, that's too strict. I think uh, yeah. people anyone born after 60 is a Gen Xer. So, uh, you know, you, you should have counted. Well, Doug took credit for it. He said, I made that rule. <laughs> I said, okay, well, that's why I'm just now getting to know you, Doug. You're not yeah. 20 it, it, your whole story could have been different if only he had let you in. <laughs> oh man. He might've, he might've saved me. Who knows? I don't mean, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, my, my involvement in that movement kind of both saved Andrew and me in different, in different ways. Yeah. But uh, no, so uh, to, to finish the, uh, the the narrative about my my studies, uh, did my did theology at Austin Presbyterian Seminary, and then went on from there to Baylor to do my PhD in religion and church history specifically, and I and I basically wrote uh, a history of that emerging church movement. Oh wow! Okay, where it came from, what it was influenced by, how it started, where 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 it went. Yeah, and just for our listeners, most everybody knows I'm a Baylor grad. And that, you know, and obviously Baylor sports has had a lot to cheer about these last three years. How's you it going? Sikkim? Is that the? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. I mean, RG3, like you, you being there only for PhD, you didn't really have maybe the whole uh, immersion into the Baylor sports world, right? No, because I was commuting but, from Austin at the time, too. So I was yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what happens. PhD students don't, don't always drink the Kool-Aid, you know, but uh yeah, especially <laughs> not when you're in your 30s doing your PhD. You're right. there for a purpose and you're kind of laser focused. Yeah. But yeah, I drank the Kool-Aid. So I've I've always been a Baylor fan sport wise. And of course, we got a great female basketball team mm -hmm. cheering for Brittany Griner right now to get back out of Russia and back yeah. home to America. And then I'm also a big, you know, of course, we won after, you know, we won the NCAA championship. I'm a huge college basketball fan and uh, yeah. And the Baylor football team did great last year. Right. I mean, it was amazing. So it's a good time to be a Baylor fan, but here's the thing I wanted to say is that we found out that my church history professor, when I was at Baylor <laughs> was your dissertation yep. director. Yep. Yep. Bill Dr. Pitts, Dr. Pitts, Dr. Bill Pitts been around forever. I think he just retired. Uh, Well-deserved retirement. He must've been just like a year older than me when I was in his classes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he might've been, he might've just been fresh out of Vanderbilt. Uh, yeah. One of, one of the most kindest, uh, generous and, and, and really excellent scholars that I've had the privilege of working with. Um, yeah. And a dear friend. Yeah. Uh, I, I took, uh, I probably took an introduction to church history class with him. Probably, a, a, I know I took Catholic history with him. And then I also probably took a reformation class with him, something like that. Yeah. I, I had to teach some of those intro to church history classes as part of my, you know, when I was a grad student and the, you know, 60 Baylor freshmen, wide eyed, having their minds blown as I, uh, you know, explained to them how uh, the story of Christianity is way more complicated than they, they were led to believe. And yeah. uh, that was so much fun. I, I, that was my favorite part of teaching was getting to work with those freshmen and those intro kind of classes. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get that in uh Baptist Sunday school class. <laughs> yeah, no, 
that, yeah, that, these, I, I had a, a two chalkboard long flow chart of the, uh, all the Trinitarian doctrines and how they evolved. And I'm pretty sure nobody, none of the students remember any of it now, but they will remember the flow chart. At least they will remember yeah. how big and complicated it was just for the early church to sort out this thing called the Trinity. Yeah. You know, so, and, you, and it turns out a couple of Cappadocian dudes were drinking beer and figured it out. No, anyway, <laughs> yeah, they got the right answer. Like they once and for all, somehow those guys must've been the beer. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. We won't, we won't dwell on that right now, but right. Uh, we're, we're getting anyway. off topic. yeah. So, what, what, uh, after you did your PhD, kind of how did, you know, how did you land at Illumin? And let's, let's kind of sort of get to Illumin. I, I want to talk about some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll have to, uh, cut out a, a bunch of stuff that happened in between, but that's fine. Um, because the, the story with Illumin for me is that being raised in conservative evangelical culture and eventually moving out of that but also being raised in rural, small town, Northern Michigan, where ideas of masculinity were very stereotyped. You know, it was hunting, fishing, fighting, working on your truck. Um, you know, it, it was, and if you weren't into those things, you weren't really, you know, a real, a real man, as it were. Um, it, it was in some ways kind of violent and threatening, you know, there was fights and, and threats and things happening all the time. And as a, a geeky kid, I was a target of that. And I, so I never felt at home in sort of stereotypical masculine culture. And even when I moved into more, uh, you know, uh, educated evangelical circles, they were still reading you know, wild at heart and books like that, that kind of still prevented, presented a very narrow specific view of this is what it means to be a man once and for all, here's the the formula. And, uh, and it just never fit And it. And it, it didn't work for me because, um, I, you know, I was, like I said, I was more into the life of the mind. I was more, uh, in that internal life, uh, you know, more aware of my emotions, uh, for whatever reason, uh, more egalitarian, you know, I, I would take care of my, uh, my kids when they were little and change their diapers. And my, uh, my Texas in-laws just thought that blew their minds that a father would, would do that. That's not, you know, the dad's job. Why would I do, why would I change diapers? But that was just kind of how I was raised, I guess. Um, you know, I had, I had, Parents were my, a strong mother who, you know, <laughs> was in some ways a leader in the family um, and definitely a leader in the church. I, the, the women that I worked at the camp where I was raised, um, the Baptist Bible camp, we had strong kind of horse wrangler women. Uh, I was a horse wrangler. So I, I don't know. I, we just I was surrounded by those examples that the gender stereotypes didn't fit and uh, didn't fit me. And so when I got to Austin, sorry, I'm trying to give you the short version here. <laughs> when I, when I got to Austin, I stumbled across uh, these guys that were part of this thing called the mankind project. And MKP basically is a, was a corollary or an offshoot of the feminist movement. They said women are doing their work. Um, they, they're getting in touch with, you know, their true selves and, and liberating themselves from the shackles of the past. Men need something like this too. And uh, so guys like Robert Bly and, and Robert Moore and, and some of these writers that were writing, you know, the, the myth of Iron John or writing about these archetypes of mas you know, masculine archetypes, they started uh, mostly based on Jungian psychology. They started creating um, immersion experiences, initiation experiences, rites of passage to um, to help give men an experience of going inward and doing that inner work that we're not very good at doing. Um, you know, we might call it spiritual work, um, or if you want to, you know, or just psychological, uh, you know, inner work. And, um, and it was transformative for me to go through that, to, to be around men who, who were doing that and who were encouraging that, who were, um, the kinds of guys that you could be real and authentic with the kinds of guys that you could sit around and talk about your feelings and your relationships instead of sports and, you know, hunting or whatever, um, and that was revolutionary for me to find other men like that. And it, it changed me um, being a part of it. The same time that, uh, well, a little bit after Mankind Projects was doing its thing, Richard Rohr, this Franciscan spiritual mystic teacher, um, was also starting his own sort of men's experiences back in the 90s, uh, men's rites of passage. He started with younger boys, 
realized real fast that young men need elders to mentor them and that we hadn't raised up a generation of elders. And so he kind of shifted and focused on, uh, on doing both doing young men and, um, focusing on elders. And so these rites of passage, they're not just for guys in their twenties or whatever. They're for guys of all ages and, and often skews older second half of life kind of guys, guys that are, have built their tower and, and built up all the ego stuff and then realized that's not, it's not actually um, as meaningful as I thought it was. And, and there's what Richard calls the path of descent, you know, it, not just Richard. I mean, this is kind of common to most spiritualities, right? That there's the path of ascent where you're kind of building your ego, learning, feeling your power, um, you know, and these are good and necessary things, you know, to find your identity, to define your boundaries, um, healthy ego formation. But there comes a point in your life where you realize like you're going to die, that your life isn't all about you, that you're not as, you know, strong or as awesome as you, as you've been projecting this whole time, those elevator pitch versions of yourself. And so that you, you reach that tipping point and you can either embrace that realization or you can fight it or you can uh, ignore it. And uh, the path of healthy spirituality and healthy men's work is to embrace that path of descent and to start to let go of some of those ego things. So that, uh, so when I came across a Lumen, um, well, I, I had been hearing about Lumen for years uh, through Richard's work and through some mutual friends that work for the CAC, uh, Richard's organization, the Center for Action and Contemplation. Um, and so an opportunity came to to work for Lumen and to help to, as their administrator, and it was it was perfect fit because it it jived with what the work that I'd already been doing in Mankind Project. It jived with this kind of open approach to spirituality. Um, and it was meeting me kind of right at the, you know, I'm, I'm early forties. So I'm, you know, just at the end of first half of life stuff and just starting to think about second half of life stuff. And, um, and yeah, so beginning to need to reckon with that path of descent and, and what does that look like and what does it mean? And where are there mentors and guides that can show, show you know, show the way and, and, and provide some opportunities, um, to learn how to do that well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that that's the the short short version of how uh, how I got involved in Lumen and why. Yeah, um, I'm curious. Um, I remember reading Iron John when it came out, which I'm I'm trying to think back. Was that like early '90s, maybe or late '80s? I want to say '80s. Yeah, sometime in the late '80s. 80s. Um. And I remember, I remember liking it, you know, um, and then I, I remember out of that, there became different movements around this idea of male initiation rights. And, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm, and I'm thinking backwards and trying to think of stuff that I, you know, that I was, but I remember, um, the, the idea that our American culture had kind of lost uh, any kind of initiation. I mean, maybe like right. Jewish culture, maybe still had bar mitzvahs. If you're in like mainline Christian churches, you might do confirmation, but it wasn't specifically masculine. Right. Um, I remember, um, you know, maybe it was drinking or having sex or getting or driving a car was male initiation in, a, in the masculine world of American teenage, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, we romanticize that, don't we? Sometimes like, you know, guys have sex and oh, you become a man or yeah, you, you know, you get a car or or take the, the, the road trip, you know, ever since the beat poets, you know, going on the road and, uh, mm-hmm. and taking the great American road trip. That's your, you know, we, we create, we're desperate for these to create these sort of rights of initiation. Sometimes we come up with them for ourselves in, in lieu of the ones that society used to have for us, but it's been a good uh, hundred years or more since we've really had anything like that. And, and masculine and, and for, for men in society, and mm-hmm. for women too, I mean, women need, need this too, but they, you know, the way that, I mean, I'm, I'm not a gender essentialist and I get real kind of itchy when we start talking in strict terms of masculine, feminine, men and women, you know? Um, so I'm not saying this is true across the board for all women, men or all women, but I think right. the way that our society has socialized women and the way that our society has socialized men, there are often different needs that, that women sometimes have those experiences 
um, whether they're biological through uh, menstruation, whether they're or, or childbirth, or whether they're social in terms of um, you know friends groups and social groups that women are often better, more immersed in those things. Whereas men, we tend to be more isolated and we tend to be more loners, and we tend not to have those ex- those rights, those markers in our life that now you're a man, now you're whatever. And the reality is, you know, whether it has to do with testosterone or whatever, like men want challenge. Men t- typically want to feel their strength, to feel their power and to push back against something, to, 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 to be challenged, to, uh, to test it against something. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's part of both the building up of the ego, but also the, the tearing it down a little bit. Um, and uh and it's important. It's important to tear down that ego a little bit. Otherwise we, we become assholes and we become toxic men and we become the kind of guys that, you know, don't um, know how to treat others with respect and, and, and compassion and, and gentleness. Um, so in order to be gentlemen, to be, to be nurturing men, to be men that are healthy and whole and well-rounded and that can embrace both their masculine and feminine energies, we actually need these kinds of rites of passage that, um, <laughs> that soften up the hard parts of us and, uh, and toughen up the parts that uh, need to be toughened up. And so in the past, these rites of passage were physical demanding, go out into the woods, you know, have a spirit vision, uh, you know, starve yourself, take psychedelics, something, you know, um, hunt, you know, kill an animal, uh, these days, you know, the challenge is more internal and spiritual. That's, that's the part that we struggle with, um, and so we, you know, the, the challenge is to face your core wounds and to, and your authentic self, that thing that we hide from all the time with our busyness, with our toys and distractions and social media and, uh, and work and uh, ambitions. And we don't ever stop and just confront the man that's inside. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's the work that needs to be done. That's the challenge um, that, that requires that strength and that testing. Mm-hmm. At least that's that. That's the theory, anyway. That's the idea. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, keep asking just some questions around this. The um, so the so I remember vaguely remember when this Iron John thing came out. There were, and I I don't want to divide this too heavily, but I, there were there were different groups of men's work yeah. that yeah. that that tied onto that and then tried to develop their own versions of male initiation. So you had like, did, did Sam Harris actually work with a men's movement thing years ago? Did he? He might have. Or am I wrong? I could be wrong about that, but there was somebody that, that initiated a one that was connected to, to the, the guy is a Bly that wrote John, iron John. Yeah. Or, there were, for lack of a better word, there were some secular versions of that where guys would go out into the woods and mm-hmm. howl in the dark. And I don't know what all they did. You know, I did never go on one of those. Yeah. But Mankind Project is one of those that grew out of it. I think there's a few other organizations that do similar things. And then and then the evangelical world picked it up a little bit. And then they tried to kind of do their versions of male initiation. And you happen to mention Wild at Heart and... So I, so what's funny is like, I would, I, I think like you do now in that I, the masculine feminine language, you know, breaks down, you know, in all kinds of ways. Right. But, but I still think that so many of us are socialized and then to what extent there's genetics and chemistry behind any of that, you know, whatever. I, I don't want to try to. Yeah pop that bubble or analyze it too much. But, but I would just say that like wild at heart would have been more of a masculine version that was more of an evangelical version. And I'm, I'm fairly, you know, I'm, I've been into sports, rock climbing, mountain biking, extreme sports, but I'm also a kind of a geeky, I've always been studying, I've always been getting degrees. And so I've got that intellectual side too. But when I read Wild at Heart, it's like, oh, I mean, I just like to me, it was just like how I'd lived my life, basically. You know, I didn't, right. I didn't, I didn't wasn't, and no revelations went on for me because I'd been doing most of that shit all my life. <laughs> you so, know, it's funny when I read it too. Uh, I I re- I resonated with it at the time. 
And oddly, I was the only guy in my group of guys that was reading it that did resonate. And it was mostly because I had grown up in the woods in northern Michigan and I had done some of that outdoor adventurous okay. type stuff. Yeah. But the guys that I was with were musicians and, uh, you know, and lawyers and perform, you know, like they were they that wasn't their who they were as men that that mm-hmm. wasn't their identity mm-hmm. they, and uh and so they're like yeah no i really don't i don't understand what he's talking about you know and and that's so at the time maybe it did fit me but it but i was thankfully in this group of guys that woke me up to the fact that yeah no it, but it doesn't fit all of us and this is mm-hmm. just one one way of being a guy so i'm not mm-hmm. saying there isn't some good stuff there um it, it was meaningful to me at the time I just realized there was so much more there's not not one way to be a man. There's if anything, these movements are about liberating us to be whoever we're we're supposed to be. Yeah. So let's, let's use a term that may be too loaded, but like when you, when you think about what you've working with, with a lumen as, as it relates to any of those versions of male passage stuff. Okay. Um, like the term false masculinity, what would, does that mean anything to you? Is there such a thing as that? Are, are there, are there versions of masculinity in our world today that we're like going are toxic? I mean, I, I have my ver- views, but I want to hear yours. And especially <laughs> I, I, as it relates to the work you're doing as well. I think so. I think, I think there are toxic forms of masculinity. Um, I, I would say, Toxic masculinity is the result of traumatized masculinity that there is a wound that all people have men and women and anyone else um, that is caused by patriarchy that it, and by patriarchy. I mean that social system in which men are placed at the top and given more power and more privilege by default, as if it's, you know, a God ordained way that, that things ought to be um, or whether, whether that's, you know, given religious justification or whether that's given, you know, pseudoscientific justification for why men should be in charge. But that system, which let's be honest, has persisted in most cultures throughout most of recorded human history. So thousands and thousands of years of enculturation uh, of patriarchy that damages people because it's not, well, it's, it's just frankly false. It's just, it's just not the case that men are supposed to be in charge of everything. And that there's some fine right to be an asshole. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, or even, <laughs> even if you're, you know, a benevolent ruler, you're still the ruler. Um, and that, and the, the thing is, you know, it's clear to see how that system damages women and non-binary folks and folks that fall outside of the gender binary, but it's also damaging to men. And that's the thing that I came to realize is that I had been damaged by um, those stereotypes by, by that kind of toxic version of masculinity that, and, and I call it traumatized because if you've ever read bell hooks, uh, the late bell hooks, who just passed earlier this year, uh, uh, African-American womanist writer, fantastic writer, um, love her book. Uh, she has a book called all about love. Excellent book. There's also a book that I just picked up. I'm writing it down. Um, here it is. This is one that I'm reading next. The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love by Bell Hooks. Spell and, that. Is it H-O-O? Yeah, K-S? H-O-O-K-S. And it's okay. lowercase. Her name is lowercase. So whenever you're writing it out, make okay. sure that you do it lowercase. Okay. Um, and she says in here, she talks in here about the ways the patriarchy has harmed men because it keeps us from being able to ex- tap into and express our feelings that from very young ages, we're told to push those things down to toughen up, to man up mm-hmm. meant boys don't cry all of that stuff. Um, and it's bullshit, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, uh, and it's a very particular type of masculine culture because there are cultures, you know, where men are very ex- emotionally expressive and men do cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think of the stereotypes of Latin culture, you know, or you think of like, you know, a passionate, sensuous Italian kind of guy, like for, for sure that guy cries or like, uh, I have a friend who's, um, uh, you know, Irish roots. And he says, yeah, in Irish culture, you're allowed to cry, but only when you're drunk. Um, and uh, I don't know if that was tongue in cheek, but I th- it seemed true to his experience. So, you know, Bell t- writes about um, just that 
the, the damage, the trauma that's done to men when we're forced to not be our true selves. And we're forced to just mm-hmm. cut out that whole part of ourselves. We might call it the feminine part of ourselves, or we might just mm-hmm. call it the, the unrealized masculine, um, the, the nurturing and gentle and, and emotion, emotive sides of the masculine. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, I, um, the, the trauma to- toxic masculinity comes from traumatized masculinity. Those wounds that we've been given from early on that say, you can't be your true self. You can't feel what you're feeling. You need to stuff it down. You need to um, lie about it, hide it, uh, ignore it until, yeah. until sometime later in life, it bubbles up and, and, and explodes yeah. and, and wrecks things. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's me. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like I, you know, growing up, you know, I'm, very committed Jesus follower, always studying scripture, started a church, built a church, grew a church, you know, taught people. But like, if I had a negative emotion or, or thoughts that I didn't think were very godly, um, you know, I, my approach was always to try to fight those. Mm -hmm. If they were sexual thoughts, like every man's battle, you know, that, you know, that whole world and, um, or to suppress it or to redirect it or to ignore it, but, but always a battle, right. With, with just thoughts and emotions that I didn't feel like were appropriate for a, a pastor, Jesus follower. And, yeah. and I had a lot of self-discipline. So I, I succeeded a long time in at least, holding all that at bay, but there were things as I got older that weren't, you know, that weren't going well in my own personal life. And one of them was sleep. Hmm. I I say now the two things got me in trouble. I wanted to sleep and I wanted to have sex. And, Hmm. and, uh, and so I had this, you know, I was just in some really interesting situations. I started trying to treat my sleep problem. And, uh, and then I ended up on Xanax and then I ended up on adding alcohol in, mm-hmm. and then I ended up having very little self-discipline over things that I had suppressed for a long, long time. Yeah. Willpower will get you a long way, but it, it, it eventually is going to break down. Yeah. It blew up under the influence of Xanax and alcohol, but then I had to go back and relook at all of, well, why did that blow up? And, you know, through meditation, I've tried to like view all of my emotions, all of my thoughts openly and curiously. Yeah. Yeah. Without judgment and try to learn from them or, or try to integrate or try to whatever, you know, it, whereas before it, it caused a battle that I do think caused a bit of a false self. You know, I had a even though I tried to be as vulnerable as I could be when I was a pastor, I didn't. I wasn't always the hero of all my stories. I always tried to be self-deprecating, but, but still your church grows and you're up speaking in front of people all the time. And people put you have a, an image of you that isn't, doesn't match reality. And, you know, I was trying to maintain some form of quote godliness. That's but where that real self comes from, isn't it? When, when right. all of those parts of ourselves that we just push the side and we try to ignore, I mean, in, in Jungian psychology, they call it the shadow. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, but it's still there. And, yeah. and until you, and, and until you notice it, until you pay attention to it and try to see the, see the shadow. So that, yes. you know, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's that. Yeah, I feel like go, okay, this is me. Yeah. And how, okay. So how do I receive that? How do I live with that in a healthy, you know, in a healthy way? That's been really, I mean, that's been a lot of the stuff. And Roar certainly helped me. The first book I read of Roar's in 2019 when I was feeling like an atheist and felt like I'd lost my faith and felt like maybe I didn't want to live anymore. Somebody sent me a hard copy of Falling Upward. Mm. And then I... And I started kind of just reading as much of him as I could because it kind of got my faith off the ventilator. Mm, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so I've been re- reading Roar. And then I then I finally got to the point where I was like, I'm going to try to meet Richard. And then that led me to Brian and that led me to Wild Goose. And now here I'm talking to you, right? <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so 
Well, well, well if you're if if you're ever so inclined, I invite you to come uh, try out one of our men's rights of passage weekends. I think you'll yeah, find talk, a powerful experience. Tell, tell folks uh, there might be people listening. Uh, you've got a re. You've, I noticed you got one coming up here pretty soon. Yeah, we got a couple. Uh, we got one in Texas in October, uh, and then another in North. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Northern California. I think also in October. Um, so the last two of this year, and then we'll have more coming up next year. But um, we do them all what? over the country, and it's like a four day immersive out in nature, um, uh, but not too rustic. It's not like a, it's, it's not like a, you know, a, a wilderness revival experience, it, you know, my, for my MROP, we uh, stayed in cabins. It's centered more around contemplative spirituality and ritual. And so there, there, and it's take and it's designed to kind of take you through a path of descent. And I can't say too much about the specifics just uh, because it would ruin the experience. If you knew too much of what was coming, you know, <laughs> you, you kind of need to be come in with a beginner's mind. Um, but it's, it's rituals, it's dramas, it's practices, it's time alone in nature. Um, it's uh, time to, work through grief. It's a time to work through, um, that false self and those core wounds that caught that create that false mm -hmm. self. Um, and then, and then learn how to release and, and let go of some of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and to go through a bit of a, a gauntlet of sorts of, um, of learning, of learning to be stronger and to reclaim your true self despite those core wounds, despite those yeah. things that have harmed you in the past. So uh, that's, that's about all I can say about it so far, but it's, it's um, for me, it's been transformative. I, I just did mine in um, May. I had done a similar weekend with mankind project several years back, but I just did Illumins back in May. And, um, and my life has been different since like I, mm. I, I was able to release some things that I've been holding on to for so long. Um, mm. There's something tangible, something about tangible ritual, about doing something that's embodied, that's physical, that's more powerful, at least for me, than just working through it in my head. Because I've been working through some of these things in my head, you know, some grief, some things I needed to let go of, some past relationships, mm -hmm. past career. I've been building a, I've been sort of an entrepreneur and building a business that fell apart during COVID. And I just needed to release some of that, that mm -hmm. grief and that stuff. And no matter how much I'd gone over to my head and worked through it with my therapist, it wasn't until I went through some of these embodied rituals that I, that it actually just, there was this marker of, okay, that's done now. That yeah. part of my life has passed. I've actually put to death that person that was holding onto those things. And now I'm free to be a new person. Yeah. Until, because for some of my audience, the word ritual is negative. <laughs> right. Because, you know, like I was, you know, we were, I was kind of the semi or, you know, charismatic light, you know, rock and roll. Yeah. Um, a little bit progressive evangelical pastor, you know, we had <laughs> women pastors, you know what I mean? And we, we did a lot of social justice work in the city through what we called servant evangelism and, you know, showing God's love and practical ways to all the, as many hurting places as we could in our city, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but, um, but I had about 30% of my people came from Catholic backgrounds. And so for them, ritual was like meaningless <laughs> things that made that didn't help them out spiritually at all. But you're, you're using the term ritual in a, in a very positive sense. It's like something we actually need. Yeah. If, you know, if I could push back on that just a little bit, Fred. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah. The, the I, I grew up Baptist, so I am definitely from the tribe that was against dead ritualism. That was right. against all those things that those yeah. Catholics did and probably the Lutherans and Presbyterians, too, because, you know, we couldn't tell the difference. And um, they <laughs> and but the reality, but, you know, it was bullshit. Because the reality is the Baptists had just as many of their own rituals. They just didn't like to let, you know, acknowledge that they did. Charismatics did. Pentecostals did. It's the way that you do things, those routines, those habits, those practices yeah. that you do over and over again. And, and my God, I mean, you try to move the, uh, the communion table to a different spot of the sanctuary or change the color of the carpet in the, uh, you know, in the reception room uh, or the nursery, or you try to, you know, not raise your hands during worship or raise your hands during worship. I mean, whatever, yeah. as soon as you start doing things differently, you start to notice where the rituals are that people actually care. Yeah. 
and yeah. because and and in a sense rightly so because rituals are important we we live our lives through rituals getting up in the morning and brushing our teeth and and taking a mm -hmm. shit and eating our breakfast and whatever and uh like that's all ritual that, that's yeah. routines and practices that help us order and structure our day so that it's not just chaos yeah um, and rituals are also kind of a microcosm of of reality you do in small to, to illustrate or, or live out the things you want, uh, in large. So, um, you know, yeah. they're, they're practice in a sense. I, I, I to I'm totally agree with you. And I, my church had all of our own rituals, right? So I, I totally get that. And, and I was, I remember reading God 10, 15 years ago, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it now, but it was like, it was like a psychologist book for maximum performance, like for top performance, almost kind of like a mm -hmm. Tim Ferriss kind of idea that he's yeah. always doing top performers everywhere. And one of the questions he always asks, like, you know, Serena Williams, the best tennis player in the world, or this person, the best, this person in the world, the best, this person in the world is what are, what are your rituals? What are, what are the things that you get up and do every day that, that were the practice part that got you to where you're at? You know what I mean? Exactly. What, do you remember the name of that book that I'm trying I to think of? Do you not know you that know? one? Yeah. Okay. I, I will say, I'm, I think what people don't like, it's not that they don't like rituals, that they don't like dead rituals. They don't like meaningless right. rituals. Meaningless. They want to understand. And this might be a facet of American culture. We, we feel like we have to own our, our spirituality. We feel like we have to right. be in control of it. Uh, you know, um, Martin Marty, the great uh, church historian, uh, calls it the Baptistification of American Christianity. Uh, Nathan Hatch, another historian, calls it the democratization of American Christianity. It's this idea that all of us need to be, that, that we all want the priesthood of all believers, whether you're Lutheran, Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist, charismatic, that uh, American Christians want to feel like they're in control of their own spiritual destiny. Um, and, and that it's yeah. at the end of the day, it's just them and God or them and whatever higher power or higher reality that they believe in. And so um, they want to know why they're doing what they're doing. And that's a very legitimate, you know, demand. And I think churches and spiritual communities that can have ritual, but help people see what the, the what and the why of it, mm -hmm. they're going to thrive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm on board with you. I, I, I I'm trying to, play the devil's advocate a little bit there because, yeah, you know, absolutely. you know, people, people would, you know, leave a liturgical church because it, they never had gotten anything out of it. And now all of a sudden they find life in a charismatic church or a free church of some sort. And so sometimes they drift back once they're old enough to like do some reading for themselves and realize, Oh, that's what those rituals were about. And it's I a shame have, no one ever told them before, or maybe they did yeah. and they weren't paying attention. I mean, I don't know how many middle school kids actually pay attention during confirmation classes. So <laughs> I know, I know now I have, a, I have one of my cousins is uh, you know, that grew up Baptist, but has been Greek Orthodox now for a good chunk of his life. And, you know, as, and I've had a lot of friends that have left the course, I have people who have gone everywhere, you know, <laughs> so, um, and, and even me, I've been in a meditation group and this is, I want to get in, I want to ask you about the, the spirituality component, the com contemplative component. So, yeah. Um, so the ritual component obviously overlaps the contemplative part, but maybe there's a little bit of the difference. I don't know. Or maybe you make some of your contemplative practices, rituals, but, um, like I've been in a, like a Buddhist type meditation, a mindfulness meditation group for almost mm -hmm. two years. Mm. And it's really been helpful because of my, you know, I call it my, uh, I, I think I've had an overactive amygdala my whole life. <laughs> yeah. You know, never, that's my insomnia. I only slept three hours a night for like 30 years. Couldn't turn my brain off. And then all the trauma that I've gone through with the losses and everything. And so I, I've found the meditation practices really helpful for me, you know, to kind of try to heal my brain some. Um, so I'm guessing you guys are incorporating it. When you say contemplative, you're incorporating some of those practices of, of meditation and awareness. And Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, I mean, cont contempt, contemplative spirituality um it's 
it's more or less the same thing that people mean when they talk about mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there might be some differences. There can be like centering prayer is one of the practices. Uh, and that can be more specifically Christian where you're focused on a specific phrase or image um, and centering your thoughts, your meditative thoughts on that. Um, but really that's just the difference between sort of there's two types of meditation, right? There's, a meditation where you're trying to empty your mind and just focus on your breathing and just noticing the thoughts that go by, but not fixating. And then there's kind of centering meditation where you focus on a, on a, a mantra or, or some content or, a, you know, a thought or a phrase or a word or a reading or an image. So, you know, there, and there's both really. So the contemplative movement, contemplative spirituality, it's, it's analogous. It's akin to, it's a cousin of uh, mindfulness meditation, mm-hmm. some of the Eastern practices as well. In mm-hmm. fact, um, Richard Rohr, when he talks about this, he, he describes it as he, he places it within what's called the perennial tradition, which is um, a, a thing that religion scholars like me talk about as a movement that tries to look at what are the common themes and practices across lots of religions and lots of spiritual uh, mm-hmm spiritual traditions, what are the, um, the common themes, the common practices, the things that they all sort of do. And, um, and so in order to find some common ground, but also to say, these are the tried, tried and true methods. These are the things that humans have been doing for thousands of years, the tech, the technologies, if you will, mm-hmm. um, you know, spiritual technologies of that have been tested that have been, um, demonstrated to work to, to do, you know, what they, I mean, that's what I love about Buddhism is, you know, you ask a Buddhist, like, why should I believe in Buddhism? And they'll say, well, just try it and see. And if it doesn't work for you, then don't, you know, like it's a very experimental kind of uh, philosophy, religion, whatever you want to call it um, because it's about those practices. And so, yeah, um, for me, that's what prayer is these days. Prayer is, um, is meditation. And, and for me specifically, mindfulness meditation in the sense of noticing, because my, my theology, insofar as I have one of God, is uh, beyond just mystery, is that God is imminent, that God is everywhere, that everything, you know, the world exists within God as, you know, first Corinthians in him, we live and move and have our being, you know, everything does. Um, and so if I want to connect with God, if I want to communicate with God, if I want to notice the divine and notice the rea- that divine reality, all I have to do is notice. All I have to do is wake up <laughs> to, to, to open my eyes and pay attention. And all of a sudden I start to see all the things that I was missing in the first place, all the things that were there the whole time. And I just didn't know, uh, because I wasn't paying attention this is why the theme of our, we, we have an annual men's conference called Solarize. It's coming up uh, beginning of November in New Mexico. And the theme for this year is awaken because mm. more than anything, that's, that's, it's so simple, but that's kind of what we need to do is just to wake up. Now is, is that different than the, uh, the rites of passage, the, the solar, the, yeah. So the rites of passage, even though you're doing it in a group, it's a very personal experience. It's your own personal rites of passage. And it's sort of an initiation first kind of uh, sort of thing. Um, Solarize is, is more communal. It's a men's gathering. It's coming together with lots of other men still to do intensive inner work. It's not not speakers and workshops and that kind of thing. It's intensive inner spiritual work, but it's a little more of a nationwide corporate gathering, bring everyone together. So it'll be, you know, several hundred people. And um, uh, if, if, if his health is up to it, we're hoping uh, Richard war will be able to join us. Uh, we haven't been able to confirm that yet, uh, yeah. but he has in the past, you know, he, every year he comes and, and reconnects with us. Right. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah. So the men writes a passage, it's 40, 50, 60 guys. And, and you're doing it kind of in this smaller, more personal vein, but really you can do it in either order. So if you're, if, if people are curious about a lumen, come to solar eyes, see what we're about, and then decide if you want to do this more intensive mm-hmm. rite of passage. Yeah. I'm, and I'm curious too, like, let's say, um, you know, with, 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 with all of the gender in inclusive language that we try to use now. And, um, you know, I have, I have, I have a really close friend that's that's a trans woman. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm curious, like, I'm I'm sure she will listen to this and I'm, I'll be curious to have a conversation with her about 
uh, this, but I'm, I'm curious too, like, like what if you had a trans man mm-hmm. uh, show up at a, at one of your Illumin events? Yeah, no, that's a great question. One that we've raised, uh, you know, we've, we've been working through cause yeah, this, uh-huh. is, this is new to a lot of us, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of us are learning how to talk about this and be more inclusive in ways that mm-hmm. work and make sense and that don't uh, leave anyone out. And I mean, I just even personally, I've had to figure this out more recently. My, my youngest uh, child came out as trans about a year ago. Um, mm. and, uh, and so I've had to learn, you know, what are the right ways to talk about this and think about this? Um, so for Illumin, what we do is, uh, we just say all male identified persons are welcome. Mm-hmm. If you identify as a man, you are welcome to come in. And, and mm-hmm. then that's up to you. We leave it up to the individual to decide, does this feel like a place that's right for me? All right. Um, so, so yeah, a trans man would absolutely be welcome. A non-binary person that identifies more on the masculine end, uh, you know, or f- would feel comfortable in a group of men doing men's work. Absolutely. It's, it's up to that individual whether they feel comfortable. Um, you know, we, we don't, uh, we don't yet have programs for women or trans women or, you know, feminine, feminine identified persons. And that's just kind of, you know, we can only do so much and there's already a lot of great organizations out there working with women. And so we don't want to presumptuously assume that what we have is going to be good for them too. If a group of women wanted to come and, and say, Hey, we want to adapt what you're doing. That would be wonderful. But, but so far, uh, unfortunately we don't have, uh, stuff for that side of thing. We do work specifically with male identified folks, but, but any male identified folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. Wow. So you've got a great, the Illumin is a great website. Um, what, how, how would people connect with you, Mike? If, if, uh, uh, yeah, no, the, the, the best way to dip a toe in is through our virtual councils um, or through our local chapters. So we have over a dozen uh, official chapters all around the country. Um, and we have a f- about a dozen more smaller kind of just getting going groups. Um, so if you happen to be near one of them, just go to our, you know, illumin.org slash chapters, I think. And that'll give you state by state list or even country by country. We have like seven different countries that have uh, men's work groups that uh, were inspired by Richard Rohr's uh, work. Um, and if you aren't near one of those, we have virtual councils that meet every week, sometimes multiple times a week, um, that you can dip into and count by council. We mean it's, it's basically a small group practice. It's, it's a, a method or a mode of going deep, being authentic with us, with a small group of men. Um, mm. it's sharing from the heart, listening from the heart, no crosstalk, no giving advice and back and forth, just sharing and listening, um, lean of speech. You know, it's not a time for people to, you know, share their whole life story, but really just to get to the point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, you know, come and show up to one of those, uh, virtual councils and, and just see what it's like to be sit in a group of, of men who are dedicated to doing their inner work that are dedicated to being authentic and real with one another. Um, we just also launched um, what's called uh, passion circles, which are kind of virtual councils that are focused on a particular theme. So we have uh, one that's working through a book called the hidden spirituality of men by Matthew Fox. We have one oh. that's working through me and white supremacy by Layla sad. We have a group, a group for uh, divorce recovery. We have a group for uh, LGBT well GBTQ men uh, called the rainbow council. Uh, we have a, mm. a group for uh, ministers and pastors and spiritual caregivers um, to connect around their shared experiences, a bunch more. So, okay. So yeah, that, that would be the best way to connect is either in person, if you can find one or, uh, or online. And then, uh, you know, if you like what you see, come to Solarize and join us out in New Mexico uh, in November. Yeah. Now is Matthew Fox, the guy that wrote original blessing. Yes. The yeah. same guy. Okay. I've read, I read original blessing. I love that. I, I thought he did a great job on that. And I, I ended up learning and another book I just found recently was um, the artist's way by Julia Cameron. Yes. Yeah. She gives credit. Her early days were very influenced by Matthew Fox and the recovery world. Yes. And of course, Roar, so I've, I've been in the recovery community for about three years. Hmm. And of course, uh, one of the early book roar books I read was breathing underwater, which is his take on the 12 step stuff. And, um, and I'll, honestly, I just, you know, I got it. I, 
you know, I'd been on Xanax and alcohol for about two and a half years, which wasn't helpful for my brain, but in the healing process, I, and I now lost all my community. And so I kind of, where I found community was, um, in, in the recovery. And I've been really networked broadly with the recovery world here in Kansas yeah. city. And the thing I loved about it was the honesty, the humility and the vulnerability. And, and then I like the fact that the broad spirituality was inclusive of anybody, you know, mm-hmm. you could pretty much find it someplace to land. Even if you're an atheist agnostic, you, you could find a toehold somewhere in the, in the recovery world, you know? Yeah. You know, we have a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between what recovery folks, 12 step folks do and what our, our councils are like. Okay. Um, Just in that terms of that, you know, sharing and listening and that, you know, that's sort of the point and and the power of it um, to really hear and be heard. And we actually, we do actually, one of our passion circles is called male and on, and it's for 12 step folks uh, that want to gather with other men. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I hit most of the recovery meetings at Wild Goose. <laughs> um, just, just you know, it was, it was, and I lead, I lead a few groups like that, and I, I, I lead some AA meetings, but I also lead mm-hmm. just groups for non-addict alcoholics, but they're very much patterned after that, like in-person groups here in Kansas City. So, but it's, I love it, you know. You know, I think that it's, it's there's a, another point of analogy too, where. Um, one of Illumin's taglines is men transforming men through a power greater than ourselves. And uh, that focus on that power greater than ourselves. I've heard before, you know, from folks outside of 12 steps that they don't, sometimes that can feel disempowering, um, you know, and and maybe encourages folks to not take responsibility, but I I don't, I don't really see it that way. I see it as more of a, that path of descent, that path of letting go of that need to always be in control and to always, you know, do it through our own willpower that there is that comes that point in our life where whatever it is you're struggling with, your willpower isn't enough. And and you need to kind of just surrender and say, I can't do this. I'm going to need some help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah. Yeah. That surrender piece of spirituality seems to resonate in most traditions, right. In some, some form or fashion. Yeah. Um, and certainly in the addict alcoholic world, <laughs> uh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, what, who was it that, uh, that Jew, first century Jewish rabbi that said, you know, anyone who wants to, you know, the, the first shall be last and last shall be first. And anyone who wants to, uh, you know, be, you know, enter the kingdom needs to, uh, give up everything they have and become as a little child. I'm mashing up a few different verses, but uh, there's this theme of surrender, even in, you know, those traditional, you know, those traditional religions. uh, Mm -hmm. It's yeah. It's, it's not, it's not a surrender um, your responsibility and it's not a surrender, you know, just to follow blindly some leader. Right. It's going to tell you what to do. It's more surrender to, surrender those, that false self and those the egoic self so that you can get in touch with the part of yourself that never lost touch with the spirit that never yeah. lost touch with your, your, that core inner, inner being, um, whether, yeah, like you said, you can interpret that through an atheist lens or through a religious lens, however you like, uh, you know, where that higher power is inside you or outside of you or whatever. It's, there's something that we're missing and that only comes through surrender. Yeah. I found anyway. Yeah. My, I, I'm still, I'm still surrendering. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, good. Um, so, all right. So give us the website one more time. It's illumin.org. I L L U M A N.org. All right. And then they can go on uh, some kind of library world cat thing and read your dissertation. <laughs> uh, probably you, by now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have some books out there. No, well, no, uh, nothing that uh, most of your folks would be interested in. We publish, I publish one anthology of scholarship on the emerging church movement, but I've not published the dissertation yet. But I do think if you if you dig deep enough in a academic archive, you'd probably find it. Yeah, yeah. Like what are what are they, I forgot them already. Worldcat or what? What are yeah? The you know what? Just if you if people are actually interested in my academic work, go to academia.edu and uh, okay. they can they can shoot me a an email through that and I'll be happy to, you know, release a copy. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'll warn people though. It's almost 600 pages long. So it's not, right. it's, it's good for putting you to sleep at night. You said right. you have some sleep problems. Maybe just try reading my dissertation. Right. Right. Yeah. It's better than Xanax and alcohol. That's my advice <laughs> anyway. So <laughs> it's me to sleep and I wrote it. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike, for joining us on spirituality adventures. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation, Fred. And, uh, yeah, hope to see you at uh, some Illumined stuff sometime. I hope so. I hope so. So, or if not, at the next Wild Goose, anyway. Yeah, I I really enjoyed my time there, so that was fun. And uh, yeah, I wrote down my list of people I wanted to stay connected to. You were one of them, so thank you so much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks everybody for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures, and we will uh, see you next time. Take care. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.